Welcome to another edition of Mosin at Large. I'm Jonathan Mosin. New Zealand's most famous kids' radio show, Small World, is being revived later this week on Mushroom Escape. Today, it's my honour to speak with its creator, New Zealand broadcasting and entertainment icon, Don Linden. Mosin at Large Podcast! It was a New Zealand tradition that spanned generations. On Sunday mornings, the children would be nestled, all snug in their beds, of course, listening to what was often called the children's session. Sometimes mum and dad would take the opportunity to enjoy a sleep-in or have a break from the kids, and at other times, they'd listen in too. The same stories would keep coming up regularly because the kids liked it that way. That tradition has its origins back in a time when New Zealand's government-owned broadcaster was all there was. And then in the 1970s, after private radio had come to New Zealand, kids were given a choice on a Sunday morning. With this new show, not only were there stories and songs, but competitions and even a talk segment. The show was Small World. It soon became a beloved institution in its own right, and it too spanned the generations. Small World's host was Don Linden, and it's my great pleasure to be talking with him today. Don, it's really good to talk to you. Thank you. Is it my turn now? It is your turn now, after all that big build-up. <laughs> Good morning, Jonathan. You... How are you? I must confess, I had to go back into my um, book uh, book of paste-ups and write-ups and all sorts to find out exactly when the program started. It was 1977. I got it about right then. I thought it was about 76 or 77, so my memory's all right. But before we come to talk about Small World, you were a well-established entertainer before Small World came along. You obviously have a love of the medium of entertaining. Where does that come from? I was born for radio. In fact, when I was a child, and that's not so long ago, radios were not safe in our house because (laughs) I had to find out how they worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you took it apart did you You, well yes when I could when I got the opportunity no I was always always knew I was going to be in radio but it was primarily the technical side I had a real thing about how it all worked and not only radio but television I remember I had a lovely wind-up blue HMV gramophone which I used to play my favorite records favorite record was incidentally uh, you can't help laughing, which was a brilliant one. Anyhow, oh, I digress. But so I gutted this, and I put a hole in the front and a hole in the back, and I stuck it on a, a sort of wooden tripod, and that was my television camera. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always knew I was uh, I was going to be in radio, but I was really only production and uh, I mean when I went to sit and tech later that I took the radio course and I did a radio apprenticeship uh, it's in when I say radio apprenticeship with a company but always fascinated by the technical side of things tape recorders and everything and yet you were also acting weren't you I mean you've you've had a career in the acting profession as well so you've got that mix there yeah, I, I have been entertaining for quite some time, mainly in Auckland, but also toured New Zealand, um, toured with uh, Harry Miller's uh, Showtime Spectaculars, toured with Johnny Ray, um, all sorts of people. I won't go into that now. And that sort of opened another door for me. It was great. And I really got a very good grounding in uh, entertainment. I'd started where I was working at the Colony, which was the nightclub in Auckland. 
And that happened purely per chance. I was walking along Alba Street one day, and Armstrong Sidley pulled up. Bob Sell got out, introduced himself, and said, look, um, I've got a big wedding, a Jewish wedding coming up here on uh, Friday the such and such at the Colony, my nightclub, and um, I'd like to book you for that. And then the nightclub opens um, the following Saturday, and perhaps you can go on the floor show. And I remember saying quite clearly, yeah, that's fine, but I really don't think the act will last. Well, I did the Colony floor show for five years. And tell me about that act. Oh, that was, it was lip sync. Well, we call, I called it comedy mime in those days because lip sync wasn't a phrase that was, was really known. And uh, basically, I, I, I lip synced to a record. It started off quite by chance. I used to love standing in front of a mirror which is always lovely. And uh, I would mime to things like the drinking song uh, from the student prince. And my favourite was Figaro from the Barber of Seville. And a dear friend of the family who lived nearby called Reg Morgan, very well known in musical circles in Auckland, organised a talent quest locally and uh, suggested I enter, which I did, and subsequently won. And that Lit off to other talent quests. So for a while, I did the round of talent quests. And you work with people like, um, and they were just starting, Tony Williams, um, Red, uh, Red Hewitt, uh, a whole lot of people, you know, who were just in their starting days. And the breeding ground for a lot of their talent was a place called the Maori Community Centre. It was opposite Victoria Park, right on that right on the, the corner there. It was a great place for Sunday entertainment, really good stuff there. And that was sort of the beginning. And then I went on to subsequently win uh, with the Auckland final for the Joe Brown Search of Stars and went down to Dunedin to uh, appear in the final, which I did. I uh, didn't win, but that wasn't the point. And then we also did a tour of New Zealand. So all this is a, a great, it's a background, but you learn a lot of things. I mean, even just by standing and watching you, you you learn about staging and and programming and this added to other things i got involved in you know and by day you were doing the bond and bond thing is that right which is a, a retailer uh, yeah um although i left that i didn't complete the apprenticeship as i recall i left about four four years into it because entertainment just were just blossomed, you know, and that was it. And that was my path. I was I knew I was going to go down, but I, that gave me the initial grounding in radio and my fascination for things technical, which was a great plus. Because as I developed, I was also able to build my own amplifiers, which were were portable, and I took with me for a presentation of the show. Another bonus of Bond and Bond was. I was fortunate enough to be able to take home tape recorders in the weekend. And I guess that was the start of it, because with a tape recorder, I found I could um, record a song and um, I would take perhaps a commercial, a well-known commercial. This was Mollenberg, all sorts of things. And you'd take out perhaps a short clip of 12 seconds or maybe 25 seconds if it was popular, because all these commercials were seen and then there was really only one station, maybe two, of television, so everybody knew them. And in the middle of a song, they would just drop in a commercial, which was suddenly brought a whole lot of laughter. It became very entertaining. And that's how I built the act with um, a lot of editing 
and it wasn't only commercials, it was dropping in other songs and things like that. And all this, because I was able to have a tape recorder at home, eventually I got my own tape recorder, second tape recorder, and indeed third tape recorder. And when I was editing in my little studio, I'd have bits of tape that I'd cut out stuck on the wall in case I had to put them back, because there was no such thing as digital editing. You had to physically put that little bit of tape back where you took it from. So it sounds very similar to the kind of thing that Les Paul was doing in some ways, and also, of course, Kenny Everett, who came later, who was a genius with the tape machine and would do multi-tracks and overdubs and all kinds of crazy things. Well, of course, Les, Les Paul introduced multi, multi-tracking. Mm. Genius, he was, wasn't he? He was the very first. And what – I mean, other people had done it, but when Les Paul did it, there was no degradation of the tracks the quality was exactly as it as it was exactly pure, and because often when you dub to another tape, you lose quality. Perhaps you lose the highs and things like that. Les Paul never did that, and indeed he invented the multi-track machine. He was a genius. Yes, he was absolutely remarkable. And we've been talking a lot, and we'll get to why over the last few months. You mentioned to me at one point that we might have you to thank for the Stardusters, which is a very famous New Zealand group. Yeah, um, this is the uh, advantage of having a tape recorder at home because the Stardusters, Jack and Bill Langford, were cousins of mine, and the third member was a chap called Laurie North, uh, a very dear friend from Rangitoto, where we had a, a holiday batch, still do. And um, when the Langfords, Jack and Billy, had visited, they met Laurie North. So we had an afternoon tea at our place one day, and uh, the Langfords were there with their wives, and Laurie and Doris North came along. And it was great. And it was only a matter of time because uh, before Cousin Bill picked up the guitar and um, started strumming and they all started to sing. And I said, have you guys ever heard yourself? They said, no. So I said, come on into the bedroom. So into mum and dad's bedroom. And I had set the machine up there and um, they made the first recording. And we did a couple of alterations. They they changed their, their vocals, what they, were, what they were doing, and just rechecked the microphone. And then we took another take. And that was the beginning of the Stardusters. I can't pinpoint the year. It's around about 55, I think. And that was because I happened to have a tape recorder at home. And resulting from that one recording, which they took away, one of them, I'm not quite certain who, it may have been Laurie North because he was in advertising and he would have known people. But within a few months, they were signed by Noel Peach at Master Studios in Shortland Street, uh, who had the Tanza label, and uh, released their first song, which was The Greatest Feeling in the World. And did you keep the tape? Next question. Because <laughs> you could have released it as what they call a bootleg these days. You know, the, I, I could have kicked myself. This is not an invitation for you, but my mother had a beautiful singing voice, uh, she did the competitions in Hamilton and that, and I've got the first, second prize certificate all that. And she had a magnificent voice, and her um, her bless this house was absolutely beautiful. And it wasn't until years after she died, I thought, Lyndon, you're a bloody idiot. Here I had a tape recorder. I record everything, recorded everything, but I never thought to record my mother. And that was a, one of the big, my biggest regrets, particularly as, the, as um, her grandchildren had 
beautiful voices and they would have loved to have heard her. And no matter how hard we try, the voices of those who have gone just fade over the years, don't they, from your memory? Well, fortunately, I do have other recordings of her in messages they sent to me when I was living in, in, in America and the voices there, you know. And I also, I, also, <laughs> I also have an old video clip when I had my first camera at home and mum and dad were in the kitchen. And that, that, that's a gem now. That's a gem. You were known affectionately as the mouth because of this act that you had perfected. And it occurred to me, thinking about talking to you, that as a blind person, that is a very visual act. Can you describe what that was all about and, and, and what you did? Well, it just so happened I could stretch my mouth wide open, which I used to advantage uh, in not in cabaret, in shows generally, because they did them everywhere. And at the right time, with on the right uh, music and, and and lyrics, it just works well, you know. And that's how it became known. In fact, when they had the first telethon, which was for St John's Ambulance Association, the closing shot was of me with my mouth open and the insignia of St John's Ambulance just coming right out of my mouth and filling the screen, <laughs> and that that was the that was the news item for that night. Just as just a sideline. Some years later, I I was driving a Jaguar. I don't know why, <laughs> but I liked it. And I came to an in- intersection one day, a very well known intersection in Auckland at uh, in uh, Custom Street, and for some reason I nudged the back of a small car in front of me. You see, oh calamity! Woman got out. I went down the window. She walked up, and this is what she said. You, I might have known you had a car as big as your bloody mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I remember that first telethon. TV to adjust started not very long before they had a go at that telethon, and they were only on in Auckland and Christchurch. Yeah, uh, the first telethon was 75. 75, that's right, yeah. It was remarkable. And I don't think New Zealand had seen anything like that before. No, they hadn't. I I recall a dear friend of mine, Don Hutchings, driving me out to the airport one day because I knew he was was about to launch TV2. And he said, when I come back, I will probably have a nice little job for you. And I thought, oh, yeah. And he never said any more. The job job that he was talking about was I was going to be one of the people on the first telethon. That was a remarkable thing about media then. You could bring a nation together with an event like that. you could. That first and second years and possibly the third, New Zealand per capita was the most generous country in the world. And the country just stopped. Oh, they did. They completely stopped. Uh, What was interesting, uh, the other thing which I think was incredible, suddenly kids were aware there were other kids who were less fortunate than themselves. And this spurred them on to do their, their penny trails and all sorts of things at school. And on the night when they came in, some of them would come in with perhaps $100. Or some would come in with $10 or $5 because they'd had a lemonade stand outside their place. But they were all very conscious of why they were doing it and what the money was for. And that was a a great breeding ground, I think. The other thing about Telethon is when it started, 
there was no money involved in any way. Don Hutchings arranged for all the visiting talent from America. Again, no money, but they had a great holiday out here and they were really, really looked after. The TV facilities were made available, catering. There was no money. It didn't cost anything. So all the money went to the cause. And that was great. And you'd get the big stars out here from the UK, from oh, Britain, oh, from yeah, Australia. Yeah. Huge acts. Yeah, well, Don Hutchings had some great contacts and, and pulled on those. And, I mean, people um, that came out were, were absolutely amazing. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of her name. Oh, okay. She was a tall English woman. But they were all quite astounded. I mean, they'd had telethons in their own country, but they'd never seen anything like they saw when they were here, how everyone got involved. And uh, they were very moved by the the charity and the collecting. So how was it then that from all of this, you came to be doing a kid's show on a private radio station in Auckland in 1977? Put it very simply, um, and we're going to jump back here a few years. (laughs) My sister (laughs) married a few years before that. That was fine. And she had one, two, three lovely girls. And suddenly I thought, hey, the programs on ZB and that, they never change. It's, they're very predictable. And look, we are now in the age of Star Wars. And there should be some, an alternate. And that was the, the genesis of the idea, which I worked on for a while. And spoke to Radio I, Chris Butcher at the time. And, um, yeah, he came on board. That was good. So uh, we did our first show from the uh, little rabbit warren, as it was known, up in um, Newton Road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and that was the start of Small World. But there was a criteria. Basically, it was, if it wasn't something I thought was good enough for my nieces to hear, I wouldn't play it. In other words, that was the only editing, if you like, I made. In other words, I wasn't going to put on anything that was uh, had uh, language or anything like that, you know. So long as... It was entertaining, and I thought they'd enjoy it. And that was really the only edit criteria I put on it. It was a brave thing to do because, as you said, 1ZB had been doing this for such a long time. And in Auckland, it was Les Andrews at that time, and, and he just seemed to be eternal. He'd, he'd done it yeah. forever. Yeah. So you must have had to have a real careful think about what precisely you were going to offer that was different, and and why would kids change? You know, because kids are creatures of habit, and their and their families set the radio on. So it's a big bold move on your part. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Um, <laughs> no, and the so Star Wars, I guess, was the motivator. You know, and along with Star Wars, there was a whole world, a whole raft of other wonderful kid stories that very rarely got played. I mean. There's a classic, uh, what a classic would be perhaps the, the Snow Goose, which may get an airing very occasionally. It was a, a great story. Uh, there were a whole lot, lot of things in, that I wanted to put in there. I had some ideas and there was a bit of idiocy, uh, which I like to work with. Uh, I often flew by the seat of my pants. I perhaps knew what I was going to play next, and then thought, and I'd fiddle around and drop something in. But it, it sort of evolved. It, it evolved very quickly. There was another criteria which did come into it. It was a kid's program, but because mum and dad and maybe the grandparents were listening, 
there had to be little elements in that they found enjoyable so that it was a total family show. And that was one of the unique things. You would play songs that weren't necessarily children's songs. They were family-friendly songs, but little sort of novelty things. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I love to, to play, and it, it wasn't PC. It wouldn't be PC now, but I've never been PC and never will be. Uh, I love Puha and Pakia, Rod Derrick. It was a fun song. I had contacts in America. I, I had been to America, yeah. And I'd found some other stuff, which I brought back. And I dug and found, I mean, beautiful, was a lot of beautiful stories. And they, what was beautiful about them was they were wonderful stories. Uh, there was a moral in there, if you wish to take take it on board. But they were produced by... CBS and the big studios in America and England, they had big bands. Billy May would do the backing. Loretta Young, great big names would narrate the stories. And that was part of the secret of it, you know. So we featured a lot of that. And, of course, um, there was a, a live request. It had to be controlled so that kids could phone in, have you got so-and-so? Oh, yeah, yeah, play that in a few minutes. And I introduced interesting elements, I thought. I mean, we had things like um, the dressing gown club. And um, this was very early in the show. It might have been perhaps the first hour just for the kids in their dressing gowns. They could uh, write in. They could ring in, say hello. And uh, I could perhaps play a record or something for them. And uh, that dressing gown club actually developed into something. A fashion parade because they would write in and I'd say, well, "What are you wearing?" So, you know, "What are you wearing, Jonathan?" And this, that, and the other, you know. And um, I just make notes. And then I went home, and I had a studio at home, and I did a. It was a typical fashion parade voice. And here we have you. And I put it all together. It was only about two, two and a half minutes, but it really went down well. I mean, there were things like. Um, and here's Jonathan in his lovely blue Candlewick dressing gown, and he's wearing his new striking red slippers. <laughs> They're called striking red slippers because when he's naughty, his mother strikes with whom. <laughs> and next we have so-and-so. So I didn't care. It was, it, was, it was just fun. And this is what they liked. Yes, I think that was one of the things that made it stand out, that you got the stories you'd grown up with or the, as a child you were still interested in hearing, but you also got this engagement, this interactivity, all of this new thing. Yeah, just, just, just it reminded me. The other thing I did inject, and they weren't on ZB or any other kids' programs, nursery rhymes and those funny stories that – Parents would hand down. I mean, I had stories my parents read, read to me, and I, in fact, I put them on a, a CD later on. But also nursery rhymes and things like that. They, I introduced those. They might be short, little short things, but you drop them in, and very soon they become a staple part of the thing. Something else occurred. Oh, yeah, we used a character called Arnold. Now, Arnold was an interesting character because I had just done a pilot for a television show called Arnold the Answer Man. And I'm not going to go into details. It was a very specific type of presentation. It was for kids. And here, kids could ask Arnold the questions, and Arnold would always come up with the answers. So I thought, let's try this. So I tried it. A couple of weeks. Didn't work. Really, didn't work. 
And I thought, why is it not working? So I rested it. Then I said, kids, got some sad news. Dear Arnold, he fell and had a bad accident. And he's been in a hospital, but he's come back. But one of the things, he can't remember things. So what I would like you to do, what I'm going to do is, Arnold's going to ask you a question, and I'd like you to write in next week with the answer. So this opened up a whole new world. Well, kids would, if they didn't know, they'd ask their mother or father, or they'd look in the book, and they'd send in the answers. So by turning it around, it suddenly worked. And the name Small World, was that just a natural thing? Did you have other names in mind? Actually, no. I think that came from my sister because uh, she had uh, the Small World the kids, disc. The kids loved it. So that was sort of the name. That's how it, it happened, you know. Space Coordinates was one of my favourites. Oh, This was yes. like you, you brought the game of battleships to radio. The phone would go absolutely mad, yes. Battleships. So in space coordinates, I had a square in front of me. The kids had a square, and I'd have letters along the top and numbers, and they had to try and sink the battle, sink the ship. And they'd come in with with A five, uh, place on, or they might say B six. Bang! They've hit different sound. Whoa, you know. So we're moving through, but eventually. I had to have two space coordinates, one for the kids and one for mum and dad, because mum and dad just loved, loved doing this, you know. <laughs> so that's and, – and that really blossomed, you know. You know I would, it had a, its own slight little introduction, musical sound effects. The instant that went out, the phone lines went, whoa, bright, they lit. And it was rapid fire. I mean, you would just oh. rattle through those callers. And yeah. I, I think Radio I in those days only had two lines, if I remember correctly. So you would be talking on line one. By the time you'd gone to line two and, and was talking to the next person, line one would already be ringing. I mean, you you did not you did not have any issue at all with keeping no, the momentum I didn't. going. I think, uh, no, we had more. I think we had more. Than, we had more because they used it for talkback. The other thing that happened was we worked in delay because it was talkback and this went on for a while and then I suddenly realized I never had any problems with language of kids or anything so we went out of delay and that was good but there were a few other things which are interesting spin-offs I was made aware in fact I'd been to visit the Wilson home on the shore for handicapped kids and you know met the kids and they had wheelchairs and they were talking about it and they wanted to get an electric chair for someone. And I said, yeah, all right. So a couple of weeks later, I did a program for the whole two. It was a two-hour show. And for the, I, I said what we were raising money for. And in two hours, we raised $1,000. Now, that's, that figure is important because the, I think the chairs at that stage were $2,000 and it was matched by the government. But the spin-off was the money kept coming in. So we did, in fact, raise $3,000 that day, which meant three kids at Wilson Home got the new wheelchairs. And that was, that was great, you know. really was. In fact, I think we did, we did, when we presented them, we did the show from there. You could do that in those days. Take all the technically, not with a cell phone, but if I did an outdoor show, we had a lovely guy called Graham Dick, nicknamed Pastry, 
and he would know and he would go out the week uh, sometime the week before and check the signal was okay from wherever the location was to Mount Eden and eventually back to here. So there was never any problem. And we had a we did have a, a travelling uh, disc with a couple of CDs, uh, turntables, and uh, tape decks, um, which were used. So that was that was an, I enjoyed doing OBs. That was fun. You met all sorts of people. You know, we did one down at Princess Wharf one day when a new liner was in. And your diligence was such that you even did one from your hospital bed. Oh yes. I read there. Uh, I had to go into hospital for um, minor surgery, uh, shall we say. And it necessitated me being in there a couple of Sundays. So I said, Graham, can you? He said, no, 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 what we'll do, I'll bring the desk here, we'll put a, a thing up on top of Mount Eden. So I did, did two shows from my hospital bed in, in Mount Eden, which was really good. Cool. Real fun. Another thing that happened, and this was the year of the child, this is not Corocare, it's Air New Zealand Cabin Services. They decided they would like to raise money and take however many kids it was to Disneyland and a trip to America. And that was a big ask. And they had a tremendous fundraising program. And I got involved with it and I said, look, let's do a, a Sunday. We'll turn a whole Sunday over. So we had Air New Zealand Cabin Services crew answering the phones and we raised a good amount. I can't remember what it was that went to the fund. And eventually they raised sufficient funds to charter the plane, I think it was DC-8, to America and make all the arrangements. And they they opened up to uh, the blind, uh, the crippled children. There were there were five groups, and they said to these five groups, "Okay, you've got these men, this many seats. You decide who goes." And that was a wonderful experience. I actually got to go along, not because I was um, being involved in fundraising, but they asked me would I like to go, and I said yes because I was going to report back live to Radio I. And also, it subsequently went to the Radio New Zealand network, the national network. And so when we were at um, California Highway Patrol, which was chips, as we the kids had seen it on those days, I had a, a rather biggish cell phone unit, mobile cell phone unit, that uh, was pro- I could connect and it would take me back to the studio and we could they could record it there. One of the innovations you also introduced that I thought was very cool was you did a thing for a while called Small World News where you encouraged oh. kids to be journalist reporters, you know, and, and report on things that were going on in their communities. And, and that was great, you know, particularly for kids like me who were really genuinely interested in, in doing radio. That, was, see, that was another thing. That was I forgot. I, well, <laughs> there was a wonderful announcer called Jeff Sinter at Radio I. And he introduced me to this young kid called Jonathan Mosen, oh, yeah. who would come in and do it. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> he sort of began to hang on. Not that I objected, but that was how I first met Jonathan Mosen. Yes, I, I remember being in the studio with you a few times on a Sunday morning. It was great for me. Well, it, was, it was great for me. Yeah, I would always enjoy going in there. Was there ever a moment you can look back on where – I presume you started this, you, th- you thought, I-, I wonder if this is going to take off, you know, is it going to work? Was there a moment when you suddenly realised we have a bit of a hit on our hands here? 
Well, we had 50,000 listeners and all was going. <laughs> you mentioned me being in hospital. Yes. But this was in 79, two years later. And I had a visitor who was on the board. It was also a very good friend of mine. And he came to see how it was. And then suddenly he said, um, we had a format change at the station and uh, next Sunday will be the last program for Small World. Couldn't have picked a worse time. I was recovering, you know, how you feel, and suddenly my world was turned upside down. I was gutted. So the program ended because they were going to a format called Beautiful Music. <sighs> so, much so it was basically elevator music, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so despite uh, 50,000 listening audience, they, they dumped it. And um, there was a little hiatus. And uh, I'm not certain. I think I had the call from Gordon Dryden, who was uh, Radio Pacific at that stage. And very soon, Small World was on Radio Pacific, but not for two hours, for three hours to start. And we had a long run there out in the studios at uh, South Auckland. Did you keep them? Did people come from Radio I to Radio Pacific to keep listening to Small World? Oh, yes. It didn't, ta- it didn't take long. It didn't take long. Yeah, I mean, Gordon Dryden was the expert in marketing. So, uh, yeah, everyone knew about it. And, of course, it, um, I think John Berry at the time wrote the station change. So everyone knew. And, of course, Jeff Sinclair, I think he had gone slightly before you had me. Jeff went to Radio Pacific at some point about the same time. So I was in there a lot too. Yeah, it would have come uh, would have come after. Yeah, no, because I'm not certain what they did with, with Talkback. If they, if they changed format to beautiful music, they may have wiped the Talkback. I don't know. Not interested really now. <laughs> <laughs> the many people. That was uh, a, a talk part of the show, which would have gone yeah. well on Radio Pacific, yeah. where you actually got kids to talk about things that were of interest or concern to them. That's what I was saying. I never had a problem with kids, so we didn't we didn't work in delay. There was no limits. You know, the kids could have a chat, whatever. You know, I never had to, uh, as I recall, chop anyone. That may have, that was probably done in delay, but I never actually had to push the button. Where else has Small World been? Because as you say, I remember it running on Radio Pacific for quite a long run. Its total life was, was just over 19 years. And I'm not how long we went, we went to we were last to the Pacific. We may have gone back to Radio I, I don't know. It was picked up later by Solid Gold. Mm. And uh, the format did change. We were held to an hour. But again, it was still very, very popular, you know, and worked. And that I think that was around about 2006, I think. But the other interesting spin-off of that is when Small, Small World did disappear for a while. But I would walk down the street and people would say, where can I, where can I, I want to get a copy of uh, The Littlest Angel or The Small One, you know. And, of course, these were all on EMI. And at that stage, they had all been deleted from the catalogue. However, I had the vinyls. You know, and this went on and on and on. And I was talking to Eldred Stebbing one day, who is a one of the recording pioneers of this country. And he said, "Why don't you have a talk to um, EMI?" And he gave me the name of the chap. 
and uh, see if they're interested. So I went along with my lawyer, as one does, who was, was a musician anyhow, and it was a very, very light-hearted meeting. And it took a bit of convincing, but he said, yeah, all right, let's, let's, let's go, we'll go with, with the list. And it was called Don Linden's Favourites. We call it Volume 1, so we must have known something, but EMI weren't too sure. Well, I think, as I recall, this happened in the November. It hit platinum by the beginning of December when I was in America. And before I came back, it went to double platinum, which is the equivalent then of selling something like 30,000. And uh, that was actually locked in with EMI. We subsequently in total did eight discs of uh, Don Linden's uh, favorite stories. Eight discs of those. We did uh, two discs of... Kids, the kids' songs of the day, Gilly Gilly Ossenpfeffer, um, Laughing Policeman, all those songs. We did two discs. Prior to this, I had recorded two discs of my own in which I told nursery rhymes and fairy stories, if you like, as they were told by me, by my parents. And that was it. And they're, still, they're all still selling. Do you know that? They're all still on the EMIs now, with, now Universal but they are still on their current catalogue. And that was pointed out rather unusual for EMI because many local artists, when they record, they have a very short life and the numbers drop from the catalogue. It is still on the catalogue. You can still go to, I know certain shops you can go and they stock the records. If they don't have them, they'll order them and they can send them to you. And I think that really was a message for a lot of program directors because I seem to recall there was actually quite a gap between iterations of Small World at that time. The program directors were saying, oh, there's no need for this anymore. It's outlived its time. And yet there's all this pent-up demand for the content when it became available. It was nice because um, I suddenly was listening to national radio one day to the kid show and they said, we're going to play um, whatever the story was. And this is from a CD Don Linden's just released. <laughs> and, of course, the other, the other popular story that uh, really stood out was, um, oh, what was it called? <laughs> Spike Milligan. Bad Jelly the Witch. Bad Jelly the Witch, yeah. I mean, many people have done it since, but it's nothing. It, Spike Milligan is the, and the absolute perfect recording of Bandit of the Witch. Yes, it, it, it's a perennial favourite. Perennial, that's, I was looking for that word. You see. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write it down here. There you go, perennial. write that down. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. What about the process of getting those discs together, particularly with those old stories? Did that come back from your vinyl or could they find Yeah, them yeah, because, because I had the records in my library, I got, took them to um, Stebbing Studios, where they reprocessed them, cleaned them up, EMI looked after any clearances. Well, they, they owned nearly all the tracks, so there was no problem. What are some of your favourites of all the material that you've played over the years in this genre? What do you like? Idiot, idiot songs. Or I think my favourite kid song would be, um, and this is interesting, I'd heard this in, in the film South Pacific, some wonderful songs, a song called You've Got to Be Taught. It's sung by Joe Cable, uh, who's had, had he's lost his lost his girlfriend and all sorts of things, and he sings. You've got this. You've got to be taught. And it was really 
nothing outstanding until I heard a, I got a disc called Kid Power and the kids sang it. You've got to be taught. Now, if you listen to that track with kids singing, it takes on a totally different meaning. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be, it's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. And the way the kids sing it, or sang it, really stood out. That would probably be one of my absolute favourites. Buckingham Palace, I loved. Oh, Pooh Parker Harris, I said. Johnny Stanley's is in the book. Loved that. Played that a lot. Played a lot of Stan Freeberg on the show. Alan Sherman's Hello Mother, Hello Father. And, of course, um, stories. Well, there are so many stories. I mean, The Snow Goose, The Happy Prince, Johnny Appleseed, a lovely story. Great. Oh, Marlo Thomas's Ladies First. That was a great tour story. But I think one of the really top stories was Danny Kay's The Little Fiddle. Love that story. <laughs> Love that story. I mean, it, go, it just goes on. I Sometimes I'll have a day and I think, Let's have some kid stuff. So I've got it all loaded on a track I was playing, and I just love it. <laughs> What's funny is that I've been talking to people uh, over morning tea about what we've been working on, and people will just mention stories that they remember listening to on a Sunday morning. And then what inevitably happens is that people start quoting their favorite line from that story. So someone will mention Molly Whoppy and all of a sudden the whole, the whole team, yeah, or and he ran and she ran and, he, and, and the whole tea room is doing it. It's a remarkable thing, really, particularly since in the 70s and 80s and the 90s, those stories were old even then. And yet they're timeless, aren't they? They, they don't really date. You know, you know what happened? Yeah, Sparky's Magic Piano was a popular one. You know what happened to Sparky, don't you? What happened to Sparky? He grew up and became Liberace. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> oh, I'm glad he got his piano sorted. Yeah. See, I mean, Roger Moore did Aladdin was, was and Lionel Barrymore, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. You know, just so many great stories. Uh, an interesting spin-off of the CDs, and I found this out later, that the put the CD on for the kids to go to bed to. But the parents suddenly got into telling the kids bedtime stories. Instead of perhaps playing the record, would you like Mummy or Lily to tell you this story? And that would happen. And that was a wonderful spin-off. Do you want me, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little story in closing, because it's probably probably closed. <laughs> As I said, I had a, a real yearning for the radio and one of the things I really wanted as a kid was my own crystal set, you see. And I was probably about six, I think. And Christmas morning, woke up early, found a crystal set there, headphones, put the headphones on. Also, Father Christmas, for some reason, left me a boat a hat, put the boat a hat on. Mum and Dad walked into the bedroom soon after, burst out laughing. Because what I didn't know... Me with my headphones, boat a hat on. I had suddenly got mumps, and my face was so big. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) For Christmas, too. I know, right on on Christmas. Christmas. Do you think good kids' material is still being made? Is there good audio stuff for kids out there now? You have to look for it. There is, I mean, I found stuff in America I'd never heard of. I mean, a crazy song like... um, Abba Dabba Scooby Dooby. Oh, it's a, a very compelling song. 
a whole lot. There's a whole lot of stuff there. And there was uh, a couple of one station in particular who plays a lot of kids stuff and they do introduce some new stories. But sometimes the I mean, the old ones, I said, big studio, big Billy May Orchestra or whoever it was, big star names telling these stories. In fact, I think it was, it wasn't Phyllis Dill. It was a couple of these people, as I said, did a retell of um, Lucy the Cow. Hit me with a name. Of Bad Jelly? Yeah, Bad Jelly. Made a note. Get your memory back, Tom. And it was never the same. So I think there are some stories, but I think they lack moral. They're fun stories, you know, feel-good stories. But all those stories, there is a moral there. Incidentally, I played, other than stories, I played songs that I found. And would a classic example would be that uh, You've Got to Be Taught, which is a song, but other fun stuff which they could enjoy. Or if they wanted to listen, there was a moral there. Mm, um, a fable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Then uh, I'm, I'm thinking I played a track called Opposition. You can never know the good if you've never known the bad. It was a fun song, but there was something to be learned. You know, you've got to be hungry to appreciate food. And the reason why we are talking about all this fun stuff, uh, which is I can talk about this stuff. Well, why are we is, talking about this now? Is, is serendipity because you just happen to be watching the television, and uh, I got a, a message oh. from one of the one of the team <laughs> one of the team on my call center who said there's this chap called Don Linden who wants to get hold of you, <laughs> and that was what about six months ago. So we've we've been on a bit of a journey with this project. Yeah, we have, really. Uh, and the reason, to tell the dear listener, the reason being um, I have amassed a considerable number of stories and songs and kids. In fact, um, I think it would be fair to say I probably have one of the best collections in New Zealand. And I've been wondering what to do with it because, I mean, if it goes to a museum, it'll get buried. If it goes to something like the archives, it's available, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And I didn't want that. So that was the reason I phoned this Mosin chap. And uh, he said, yes. So in the intervening period, I've, we've sent a lot of uh, material to John uh, or Jonathan and of story songs and all sorts of bits, bits and pieces. And there's more to come so that in his own way, he can um, bring some of those songs and stories back. I tell you what, not only did I say yes, but I um... – was literally almost in tears. It's like somebody had offered me the crown jewels, uh, and the idea that you would entrust me with this material is 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 really humbling. Uh, you know what you've done is is you've been a part of so many people's childhoods in such a positive way, and the idea that we can keep that legacy going. I, I'm sure that there will be people who will tune in who remember those days, but I'm hoping also that there will be younger people who haven't had a chance to hear this material before who will love it the same way that I loved it when you played it to me. See, that was the thing with with CDs. They were released at a time when uh, kids had not heard these before. So we targeted the parent, mainly the grandparents, with the nostalgia aspect, and that's how they grew. And what I did was, I mean, they were, were available in shops but I also established my own website, and uh, they were available to buy uh, off the website. 
And I mean, I'm not talking New Zealand, Australia. I sent to China. I sent to Europe, certainly the UK, all over the place, you know. So I am going to do a small world show on Mushroom Escape, which is the old time uh, radio and comedy channel. So it kind of fits right in there for an hour every Sunday. What's the secret to a good small world show in terms of the mix of what you play? Did you have a feel for what proportion of, of it should be stories? How much should be songs? Is there a magic formula there? I flew by the seat of my pants, young man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all right then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would try to make something. I might try, I might say, Coming up after the news, we've got such and such story or whatever it was. So you play some other, you can play other stuff. So I, I often traded stuff, but sometimes I'd be listening and I think, oh, this would go good on the end. So I might grab a sting or a little filler or a song or something and just pop it in on the end. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And I know that a lot of people who are listening who will be aware that this was coming up and want to hear the memories will want me to thank you for your contribution. You made a lot of people happy and, and there are so many great memories. And thank you for entrusting this material to me. I promise you will look after uh, it. I've just had a note. My lawyer was sitting at, well, he's here for morning tea, but he said, and I think I know the answer, he said, are there any royalties we're going to get from this? <laughs> and, I, and I shook my head. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan, I should be listening, and thank you very much for uh, taking over the Small World Library. Thank you for the honour, and it's great to talk to you today. And if you would like to hear Small World, you can hear it on Mushroom Escape. To find out what's on on Mushroom Escape in your time zone, you can go to mushroomfm.com slash escape. That's mushroomfm.com slash escape. If you'd like to tune in, you can hear Mushroom Escape almost everywhere that you hear internet radio stations. Ask your Amazon Echo, your Google device or Siri to play Mushroom Escape. You can also find it on Sonos and in all of the radio apps and on the website at mushroomfm.com slash escape. And be sure to tell your friends, your family, and most importantly, the little people in your life, Small World is back. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line, it's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.